Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the man turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this, and he said, My, that is what you get for a carrot. What if you gave the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, Let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The Corinthian Christians were attempting the same tactic when they wanted Paul to prove his authority to them, thus proving the Christian way in contrast to the other ways of living within the world. Paul's response to the Corinthian church helps us presently present Jesus to the world. If you seem a little bit lost on what Paul is saying in today's passage, that's okay. So, because we want to accurately present Jesus to the world, we need to understand the larger story. So, for the next few minutes, as we prepare to look at Paul's words together, I'm going to retell the story that Paul is referring to here in today's passage. So that when we return to Paul's words, we'll begin to see how they might apply to our lives today. Here's the rundown. God makes a promise to a family that he will provide rescue and renewal for all people using this one family. To Abraham's family. The family of Abraham grows into what becomes Israel, the Jewish people. After the rescue from their enslavement, they make their way to a place called Mount Sinai. And you can read all about this journey in the second book of the Bible called Exodus. And so they camped out at Mount Sinai for a year. And God there at the mountain with this whole nation invites this whole nation into a partnership called a covenant. The goal for this is for this people group to be shaped by God's values and his character. To then represent God to all of the other nations on the earth. They were to be his representatives. They were to, in some ways, to represent God to the world. And this is why God had selected this family, because the presentation of God had been interrupted by sin and death. So first, in this moment, there is the actual ceremony where the people agree to be God's 
partners. And God sets up the terms of the relationship, starting with the Ten Commandments. And the first two of the Ten Commandments are, don't take any other gods uh, before me, God referring to himself, and don't make any other gods engraven images. Don't take for yourself idols. Second, during this kind of ceremony moment at Mount Sinai, God shows Moses these detailed blueprints so that God can come and live amongst the people. And third, there is this longer narrative at the end of Exodus about the building of this home for God to dwell. And then fourth, in between these narratives of just God detailing these blueprints and then the execution of these blueprints comes a peculiar scene. In Exodus 34, Moses is up on the mountain with God while the people are at the base of the mountain, breaking the first two commandments, while the ceremony is going on. And so God tells Moses that he is hurt and angry. And God warns Moses that this betrayal of the people who have agreed to be his people and present him to the world, and they're already breaking the terms of the agreement, they're already breaking the partnership that they had pledged themselves to do, God is saying to Moses that this betrayal will keep on happening. And God is ready to call it quits. But the reader may be wondering, what about God's promise to rescue the world through this family? Here in this tension of God, as we refine this tension of God's mercy and justice, and there in the midst of that narrative, Exodus 34, 6, and 7 says, Yahweh, Yahweh, God's name, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. He maintains loyal love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He will bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth. Initially, in this section of Scripture, we learn who God is. God reveals who he is to Moses to then share that with the people. And so then we must ask a question. How will God remain loyal to people who keep rebelling against the answer is found in that passage, by forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But God's forgiveness doesn't mean they can just do whatever they want. In fact, we see God bringing judgment against the people who repeat their ancestors' rebellion against God. Just one observation of this passage to point out who don't really like the sound of God's justice and judgment as we think of God's character, we see that God says that he will carry out this judgment lasting several generations, to the third and the fourth, while his forgiveness and slowness to anger lasts thousands. The contrast is evident. God forgives and is gracious and is slow to anger, for a longer period of time, for, for above and beyond than the people ever deserved. 
So how does a God who is slow to anger deal with such a rebellious people? That is the question. So before we return to Paul's words, we need to see how Moses reacts to what's happening with God and with the people. Moses encounters God. And by his encounter with God, has a glow about him that is visible to others. Eventually, Moses puts on a veil over his faith, face so that people wouldn't be afraid to come near him. And so every time that Moses went to encounter God, to, to, to encounter his glory, to, to get his wisdom, to get his instructions, we learn that Moses could take off the veil because he was turned towards God and not towards the people. Whenever Moses turned towards the people, the veil came back on. So Moses coming down from the mountain after meeting God was a picture of what humanity should have been. Moses radiates God's glory because he's gazed on God's glory. The people were to reflect God to the world through their partnership with God. And with that setup, understanding some of that story, what Paul is referring to, let's return to Paul's words. Paul is comparing this old covenant, the, the scene at Mount Sinai, with that of something new. The old covenant that was mediated by Moses between God and Israel, and the new covenant between God and the Corinthians, mediated by Jesus and the Spirit. So beginning in verse 7, Paul asks a question, where he claims that the old partnership with God was one of death because we could not live up to our end of the partnership with God. The Israelites could not live up to their end of the bargain. The law, the partnership, God established with his people, which they agreed to, was a partnership based not on what they could do, but on who God himself is. The people agreed to be the best representation of God's character in their world. The old covenant was glorious. It was magnificent. The, the scene of Mount Sinai, the lightning and thunder and a cloud, and we see that Moses' face shone with glory. It was overwhelming. It was supernatural. God's presence was made manifest. It was evident. And though the people encountered this scene, despite how hard they tried, their ability to hold up their end of the partnership, despite experiencing this, would fade. And this is depicted in Moses. The shining glory of God on his face was fading. It was a fading glory. And glory isn't simply referring to a radiance or a shining appearance, but the very manifestation on earth of the presence of God. And this is the real reason Moses put a veil over his face. It wasn't to hide the shining face of himself, but to hide the diminishing glory of his face because the glory was fading. It was not going to last. And since the veil hid the face of Moses, the children of Israel couldn't see any of the glory from his face. Therefore, in contrast, it, it isn't between just a passing glory, but it's a contrast between a passing glory and an enduring glory, between a concealed glory and a revealed glory. Moses radiated God's glory because he gazed on God's glory. And that's how it should have been. That's how it's supposed to be. And that's how it can be again. See, we can be glory reflectors. People who radiate 
with divine glory. The very presence of God within the world. We can radiate that. We can be glory reflectors. People who radiate the very presence of God, radiate the divine glory of God in our world. When we turn to Jesus, when we see the glory of God in Jesus, when we do that, our faces shine with that glory in our everyday lives. It transforms us so that we can reflect God's glory, bringing light to the world. The laws that we see here in Exodus and that Paul outlines despite directing people to be God's presence on earth, were ultimately ineffective at bringing true transformation. This is what Paul means in verse 15 by, yet still today, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. See, the law reveals the true condition of our hearts. The the law revealed the true condition of their hearts, despite their best effort, despite despite seeing and experiencing, when there was an externality, they could not live up to it. It's only through an internal transformation that brings the externality into accordance with the will and the way of God. In other words, the mirror was broken, and Moses wasn't able to put it back together. And instead of realizing this, Moses tried to hide it. And hiding what was happening, Moses hid the very glory he was supposed to present to the people of Israel. And when the Israelites were that and what the Israelites were supposed to then present to the world, he created a barrier there through the veil. And we all fall into this same trap as Moses. When we try to reflect God to others through broken mirrors, through the broken mirrors of our world, people will not see the true image of God that they are meant to see. When we, instead of gazing intently on God, seeking to reflect all He is to the world, we instead look to faulty mirrors, to other images that are broken and seek to reflect them. Therefore, people miss see all that God desires them to see. And so Paul is saying, that we keep the veil in place when we look to God as teacher, helper, and example, but to our own moral performance as our Savior. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were looking to their own moral performance as their Savior. So Christianity is not fundamentally an invitation to get more religious. A Christian says, though I have often failed to obey the moral law, the deeper problem was why I was trying to obey it. Even in my efforts to obey it have just been a way of seeking to be my own Savior. No matter your standard, whether religious or not, you'll never consistently meet some external standard. Whether you're a Christian or not today, I'd have you consider the implications of the partnership Jesus has extended to you this is the glory of the new covenant it's more glorious than the old by comparison the resurrected jesus is the very glory of god and it's it's the spirit that brings transformation for people to become more like him truly living the way humanity had always been intended to live the veil is removed 
The mirror is fixed only in Jesus. So how might the old covenant and the new covenant compare today? See, the old covenant mentality might say something, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Where someone who has internalized that of Jesus would say, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Someone living out of the old covenant mentality of an external scorecard might say motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Whereas the new covenant internalizing who we are in Jesus would say motivation is based on grateful joy. Another contrast, I obey God in order to get things from God versus I obey God to get God, to delight in and resemble Him. Again, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life versus new covenant way of thinking. It says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know my punishment fell on Jesus and that while God may still allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Old covenant versus new covenant. When I'm criticized, I am furious or devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs versus when I am criticized, I struggle, but it is not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. My contrast, old covenant versus new covenant thinking. My self-view swings between two poles. If and when I am living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I am not living up to the standards, I feel humble and not confident. I feel like a failure. New covenant way of thinking about ourself may say, my self-view is not based on my moral achievement. In Christ, I am sinful and lost, yet accepted and in Christ. I am so bad that he had to die for me, and I am so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deep humility and confidence at the same time. And finally, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. Versus New Covenant says, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I am saved by sheer grace, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace am I, am I what I am. If the new covenant is more glorious than the old covenant, if this is the case, then what do we do? Last week, I urged you to come to the conclusion that we must identify the mirror as broken. This week, my encouragement to you is get rid of that broken mirror. Think of all the ways you can attempt to get rid of the mirror. You can say, I'll, I'll try to get rid of the mirror because I'll look bad, so, so I'll stop doing certain things. You can say, I'll be excluded from certain groups, or I'll want to belong. You, you can say, because God will bless me, so I'm going to seek to get rid of these things. You can say, God, I'll, I'll, be, I'll feel better about myself, and my self-esteem will be higher, so I'll, I'll stop doing certain things. 
virtually all of these motives, all these desires to change something in our life, all these motives, however, are just motives of fear and pride. The very things that also lead to sin. And regardless of what your motivation for change is, you're just using the same self-centered impulses of the heart to keep you compliant to external rules without really changing the heart itself. You're potentially even saying the right things and doing right things, not out of your love for God, but to get something from God, like the nobleman. When we understand what is true of Jesus, it's also true of us. When we have trusted in him, it removes the neediness, the need to constantly be respected, respected, appreciated, and well-regarded, the need to have everything in your life go well, the need to have power over others. All these great deep needs continue to control you only because the concept of a glorious God delighting in you with all his being is just that. Concept. And nothing more. See, the religious only say sorry for their sins. The irreligious don't say sorry at all. Christians, however, are grieved by both their sins and their self-righteousness. See, to, to become a Christian... It is really, therefore, first to admit the problem. That we have been substituting ourselves for God. By religion, trying to be our own Savior, by obedience to God's law, or by irreligion, trying to be our own Lord by disobedience to God's law. This means we change not so much the amount of, but the depth of our turn. It means very little to say, yeah, the mirror is broken, but I'll hold on to it for a while to see if I have use for it. No, we must also get rid of it. To truly embrace who God sees us in Jesus, we must also admit our effort of self-salvation, our effort of trying to keep the veil. In effect, when we keep the veil, not only do people not see our change, but people also do not see God. We cannot represent God to the world through a broken mirror. We present God to the world through reflection. Imagine being carried across Niagara Falls by a skilled tightrope walker. Halfway across, you have a choice. You can let him carry you the rest of the way, or you can tell him you think it would be better if you walked the rest of the way under your own strength. So we become Christian by faith in Jesus. We stay Christians by faith in Jesus, and we grow as Christians by faith in Jesus. So we must reflect on God's grace until he becomes our joy and delight. We must reflect on God's grace until we show warmth and affection. We must reflect on God's loyal love until you experience a deep humility and grateful, restful joy. We must reflect on God's grace until we experience calm thoughtfulness and strategic boldness. What could and would happen if we decided to actually throw the broken mirrors away? We'd start to see lives transformed. We'd start to see the value system of God become more prevalent in our world. We'd start to see a change that we so desperately desire. See, the presence of God in our lives would radiate Where people used to see independence, they now see community. 
Where they used to see pride, they now see humility. Where they used to see preservation, they now see generosity. Where they used to see judgment, they now see forgiveness. Where they used to be manipulation, there's now honesty and loyal love. Where there's now, where there was hurry, there is now presence. See, the presence of God will radiate when we truly begin to recognize that we need to get rid of the broken mirror and exchange it for the presence of God's glory by looking intently at Him.